Well, this is the last message that I'll give as part of a formal study in the book of Ecclesiastes, that is. Um, We have been in this wonderful and exciting, very practical book for, believe it or not, close to a year. Uh, And uh, we uh, now turn our attention once again back to the New Testament and specifically to the book of Galatians, which I hope to start the first Sunday in March. Um, I will need uh, the following month really to prepare for all of that. Uh, So I'm excited for that time and uh, to embark on that wonderful book with you. It's always been my habit, as uh, most of you know, to give a final word to the study of any book that I have taught through, and it's sort of a wrapping up time. In fact, we've titled this message Wrapping Up, for for lack of a better title. And that time may be, you know, a short series of messages, or in, in this case, just one message. And the purpose of my wrapping up is not to give a a summary of all the salient points uh, of the book of Ecclesiastes and essentially rehash what we've done in in one message, but rather something different. And, And it's good. We have the luxury of audio recordings. You can always go back and you can listen to any message you want with a push of a keystroke. Audio has been a great blessing to the church ever since it was invented. My purpose this morning is to challenge you, to challenge you on the basis of what you've heard these past 10 or so months, to think and to act more biblically, to motivate you to love and good deeds, to keep you racing and fighting in your spiritual lives until the Lord calls you home or until he returns in our lifetime. Wouldn't that be nice? Having explained that then, the way I want to approach this is to state what I think the overarching goal of the book of Ecclesiastes is and then go on to highlight six areas of theology that I think come from the book, uh, and I think you've seen all of them since our study. Uh, These six areas of theology will help us to achieve the goal if we're constantly refining and depending on these theological areas. So let's start first with the overarching goal of the book. I believe it's this. It, it calls us to enjoy God's life, I'm sorry, God's gift of new life in a way that honors him and makes the faith attractive. That, in a nutshell, is, is how I would express this book. So let me open it up for you and start with the gift of new life. There's no question that the sage talks about two different kinds of lifestyles that emanate from two totally different natures. They are both found under the sun, which means at the very least here on earth. They're not found anywhere else. So regarding human life on earth, there is, on the one hand, a life without God in it. We've described it variously as the fallen, depraved, Without God at its center, the wicked. Paul provides a great description of it in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, which you know well uh, and which um, we've referenced many times. On the other hand, there is a life with God at the center. And we've described that variously as the redeemed life, the new life that God gives. We would call it today being born again. And while the sage doesn't use that particular New Testament phrase, it's obvious that the book 
or in his book, that he understands these two categories by the phrases that he does use. Again, gift of God in chapter 3, verse 13, and life that pleases God in chapter 2, verse 26, life that fears God and keeps his commandments in chapter 12, verse 14. Also, his use of fear of God would support his understanding as well. Fear in the Bible is an all-encompassing word that describes a covenant relationship with God. And he uses it that way here. And finally, we can see a fuller meaning to the phrase under the sun. It refers not only to earthly realm, but the human wisdom that comes from this realm. And by using it, the writer also implies that there is another realm above the sun, which we would assume from his discourse that this place This is a place where God's wisdom comes from. It's where God dwells. It's heaven. Now, the gift of life, as he calls it in chapter 5, verse 19, is a life that God gives by his mercy and grace. Paul would later say, by grace through faith, not of yourselves. And this new life is marked by not just fear, but rejoicing. By rejoicing and enjoying one's lot in life by finding pleasure in God's creation and provisions as well, such as, well, the necessities of life, food, clothing, shelter, you know, the stuff that Jesus promises us in Matthew 6, that God will provide and not to worry about them. We can also enjoy riches, though, and abundance of provisions and great prosperity. The sage is not against those things. Christians understand that all comes from the hand of a merciful and great sovereign, and, and we take nothing for granted. Whatever we do, we, we enjoy to the glory of God, as well as use it to meet the needs of others, just like those in the early church in Acts chapter 2, you might remember, who downsized their, their property in order to share with those who were in need. So this Redeemed life that comes from God that allows us to enjoy our lot, even if it's fraught with tragedy. We enjoy to the honor of God. We live in thankfulness to him. Ecclesiastes 2, 24 to 26 put it this, puts it this way. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find <clears throat> satisfaction in his own toil. This too I see is from the hand of God. For without him who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. Now, there is another part to this. And that is to make the faith attractive. That's the last part of this goal. To those that have not had their heart regenerated by the Holy Spirit, our lives, our Christian lives, can be, well, to them, anything from mildly irritating to outright offensive. And that's without even proclaiming the gospel to them. Now, maybe, they're, maybe they're jealous that we have our lives in order, that we have a sterling work ethic, that we're nice to people who are mean to us, that we don't lose our, <clears throat> our step in the face of major catastrophes in life. I am talking about you, right? People who belong to the realm under the sun do not appreciate for one moment people who belong to the realm above the sun, and they want nothing whatsoever to do with them if they can help it. 
Now, we've all experienced this, I think, to one degree or another, right? We've experienced it at the workplace from people we thought were our friends until they found out that we were converted. And even family, who can at times be some of our most vehement persecutors. But those whom the Lord works in his own way and in his own time, whom he convicts of sin, whom he hounds, like Paul, who fought, found it hard to kick against the goads. Our lives can be a breath of fresh air. Oh, yes. They are astute enough to see how futile life is under the sun. They're what we've referred to throughout Ecclesiastes as non-Christians who are honest with themselves about life. The Lord is working in them to start to see, start to hear the truth. They admire the the confidence that we exhibit in life, especially when life mistreats us. The orderly way that we live, how we raise our children, treat our spouse, that we're also transparent and honest and trustworthy and reliable. And I'm still talking about you. Now, no one can come to saving faith, of course, by just observing the Christian life. I hope none of us believes this. At some point, there has to be a presentation of the gospel. person must understand the gospel. But when he has, and when we live a life, as Paul explains to Titus, who then explains to his church, when we live according to Scripture, we make the faith logically irrefutable as well as irresistible. It's a life that they never thought could exist. The world has taught them to look out for themselves and to seek their own pleasure at the expense of others. God, God's not even on their radar, but they see in us what, what life from above the sun looks like. And through the inner working of the Holy Spirit in what we know to be the effectual call of God, they want it. There are no better words to capture what I'm saying than perhaps Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 and 16. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one an aroma from death to death to the other aroma from life to life. Now to sum up the goal, I say again, the sage calls us to enjoy God's gift of new life in a way that honors him and makes the faith attractive. And with that goal in mind, I want to highlight for you six areas of our theology that comes from the book of Ecclesiastes and will help us to achieve this goal if we're constantly refining and acting on these areas of theology. All right? We're all still growing, and we all will continue to grow until Christ returns. So, number one, a biblical epistemology. There's that word again, epistemology. Yes, but it's such a handy way to refer to how we know and what we, how we know what we know to be true. How do you know what you know to be true? Scripture tells me. We've developed it through our, our time in the book of Ecclesiastes, and I'm not interested in, in, in rehashing it again. I simply want to emphasize that Scripture tells us how we know what we know to be true, morally speaking, even if it's against the public conscience or the status quo or contrary to the current trend in Christianity of America. 
Now, we believe in only two genders. We believe same-sex marriage, along with critical race theory, work, the woke ideology, cheating on our income tax, marrying someone who is not a Christian, divorcing your spouse who is, are not true manifestations of God's people. That's what we believe. At least they shouldn't be. Scriptural epistemology is our theological lens. They're glasses that help us to see reality the way reality really is and, and helps us to make right decisions about life. A person without the scripture can, well, draw his own interpretations from his experiences and observations of life in order to arrive at a moral decision about life, yes, but his interpretations will be absolutely wrong most of the time. See, you need the lens of biblical truth to make sound interpretations of life experiences and observations. You need it. You cannot understand general revelation without special revelation. And those times when the world catches up with the Bible, we said, actually, and actually gets something right, it's purely accidental. A sage looks at life the way we should. Not from intuition or gut feelings, not from tradition or philosophical inquiry, but from a heart of covenant faith in God and his word. And those times in the book when he took them off the lens of faith, he did so just to show us ever so briefly what life looks like from a fallen vantage point. And it was depressing, scary, deceptive, fleeting, hopeless. Beloved, that's the only way anyone can be sure of a, of a correct understanding of a fallen world that runs contrary to God's decrees. He has to put on the lens of faith. How else can you explain those times when wicked people prosper and the righteous suffer? Without the lens, without your scriptural and biblical epistemology. Well, you can't. It's absolutely absurd. Our source, of, our source for knowledge that we apply for wise living in the area of life and godliness are the scriptures. And God's, God commands us never to add or take away from it, right? And that doesn't simply mean adding extra words to it or maybe taking some words away and, and maybe criticizing new Bible translations as an example. The one who preaches a social gospel, the one who preaches a contemporary gospel of mainline evangelicalism that downplays God's judgment, those two things break God's command. Those two things are guilty of adding or subtracting. The phrase adding or subtracting really is more figurative than it is literal. It means not changing the meaning, not playing fast and loose with God's meaning of his Bible, not bending it or manipulating it or, or translating it in such a way as to, as to confirm your own lifestyle, reading it with bias. Christian counseling, for example. Christian counseling adds and takes away or is guilty of this when it integrates secular psychological tenets into biblical theology, which is absolutely unnecessary. 
and in fact impossible to do, though they don't know this, because God's word is incompatible with all of them. To quote another sage from the book of Proverbs, the message is simply this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. That's our epistemology. Number two, trials. Trials. Uh, We could say a proper theology of trials. Ecclesiastes presents the ebb and flow of tragedy and trials in the lives of both the righteous and the wicked. Why do trials factor so much into the equation of the Christian life? Well, first of all, they're inescapable in a fallen world that operates by God's decrees. They plague everyone without exception and can be quite severe at times. But let me go further. They are all tailor-made by God himself, every one of them. And he brings them clearly into the lives of the lost for his own reasons. Obviously, his reasons are always good, always holy, always proper and righteous and just. Even though we might not be able to tell that from our vantage point, our covenant of faith, our epistemology would tell us that, right? God wiped out the whole entire world with a flood. That's a catastrophe. At his own hand, he brought ten plagues on prideful Egypt. He destroyed immoral Sodom and Gomorrah all for reasons that we believe are just and holy. The man born blind, from birth he was unable to see, and now in his adulthood he is discovered by the disciples who asked Jesus, why is this man blind? And Jesus told them, (laughs) it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. God determined that this man would be born blind. Now, if that surprises you, go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, where Moses used the excuse that he was not an erudite person. He wasn't a great orator, but that he stumbled and stammered and stuttered. And God said, who made man's mouth? Who makes him blind and deaf? Is it not I? People may find that offensive, but God is just. This is a fallen world. Everything runs according to his decrees and always for just reasons and purposes. Our epistemology tells us that. And we certainly know from Scripture that God brings tailored trials into the lives of Christians that we can handle as long as we handle them biblically That's 1 Corinthians 10.13. And we also know from Scripture that these tailored trials are for our good in some way. God will use them, for example, to bring to our attention a particular sin in our heart that maybe we were blind to, so that we can repent of it and train ourselves to be godly in that particular area of our weakness. How wonderful is that? The young Christian mom never knew she was an impatient person until the Lord gave her triplets. At other times, God simply wants to strengthen our godly character, much like he did Job, much like a blacksmith who tempers steel by using fire 
God heats up our situation to drive us to respond in godly ways, to strengthen and temper our character. Or God may simply want to keep you from certain sins. How do you like that? Isn't that wonderful? Do you ever think that God would bring a trial in your life to keep you from sinning? He did this with Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Gave him a thorn in his side. Paul didn't like that very much. Prayed three times that God would remove it, and God said no. Paul learned later that this was to keep him humbly depending on God's grace alone for his work. Listen to verses 8 to 10. Concerning this, I pled with the Lord three times that it might, be, it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I delight in weakness in insults, in distress, in persecutions, in difficulties, in, be, in behalf of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong, tempered, steel. How do you use trials when they come? How do you use them? Anybody ever ask you that question? How do you use them? Do you see them as opportunities to grow by? to minister to others with, to practice humility, to depend on the grace of God, to repent of any sin that may expose you to or may expose in you. You realize, don't you, that your voice is much louder and more believable when you speak out of suffering, right? You realize that. Non-Christians are negatively affected by trials, especially those without any formal religion. But lots of self-pity goes on, unjustifiable anger, lashing out at others. Some even lose the will to live. For many of them, what is just as hard for them to deal with in these dark seasons, even more perhaps than the trial itself, is why them? You know the why question. And they have no answer to the why question. They don't. They don't have God's wisdom. We Christians know full well why in our case, don't we? God tailor-made trials for our good to make us more like his son. That's the general overall overarching goal. James says, far from complaining, we should rejoice when they come. Is he speaking about you? (laughs) Number three, our eschatology. At the very end of the book, we find the sage's bottom line conclusion. Fear God and obey his commandments in order to be well prepared for the day of reckoning. Old Testament scholars are not united about many things in Ecclesiastes, but most seem to speak with one voice regarding the subject of resurrection in Ecclesiastes. They see no hint of it at all. Imagine that. No hint. Now, while it may be true that the book itself makes no explicit reference to resurrection, I'll grant that, there's every reason to believe that it does implicitly. Chapter 12 certainly implies resurrection. Here's how I would argue this. If God himself gave the gospel to Adam and Eve, now this is arguing First of all, canonically, right? I'm, I'm pulling the lens way back to look at the entire Bible. 
salvation history is what we call it. He gave the gospel to Adam and Eve, which surely had to include a word about resurrection of Messiah. And Adam and Eve passed this information down to their children, who passed it down to their children, who then passed it along to their children, and on through the godly line that clearly is visible in the Old Testament. And the writer to the Hebrews tells us for certain that Abraham believed in the God of resurrection who could raise his own son from the dead should he sacrifice him. And Daniel clearly speaks of resurrection in the latter chapters of the book. No one disagrees with that, which Ecclesiastes was most likely contemporary with, if not written even a little later than Daniel. So it stands to reason that the sage's reference in chapter 12 to a day of reckoning, which takes place after the death of people, where everyone is quite alive and standing before the Lord, strongly implies resurrection. And I believe that it, that it has in view both saints and unbelievers in a resurrected body. And if the phrase under the sun means life on earth, then it clearly implies, as I say, a life above the sun where God dwells and where we will be as well. But we'll waste no more time arguing for bodily resurrection here. Because every sound Bible teacher will admit that there are many places in the New Testament that teach it for both believers and unbelievers at the end of time. It's in our confession, too, that we recite every Sunday. And we would see those passages as complete fulfillments of Ecclesiastes 12, 14. It is the greater fulfillment. Christ is the fulfillment of the entire law then these passages, New Testament passages on resurrection, are the fullest fulfillment of Ecclesiastes 12.14. And here's the point of it all. This day of reckoning is one of the greatest motivations in Ecclesiastes and in the New Testament to godly living. To know that one day we'll stand before our Lord and present our investment to him in honor of him to be tried by his assessing fire and prove genuine, and to be rewarded purely on the basis of his grace is enough to live through anything with joy, right? Anything. It doesn't matter what comes my way. I know where I'm going. I know what's waiting for me. And it's grand. Makes no difference to us really how life goes. We're saved from the worst possible scenario, the second death. Anything less dreadful than that in life, Paul calls light and momentary that produces for us an eternal weight of glory. Do you think that way? This is a great talking point, I think, with non-Christians. What is, what is there really to live for when you think about it? When there's nothing at the end of life but death, and after that the judgment and the second death. Right? Whether people believe in some divine reckoning in an afterlife or in an afterlife at all, they certainly believe in death. That's indisputable. And we move closer and closer to that moment every day of our lives. It may come in our sleep by some tragic accident through some terminal illness. It may come to us early in life or late. 
However and whenever it comes, it will terminate all that we've ever worked for. You can't take it with you, remember? This is the sage. This is where the sage says that life is absolutely futile, fleeting and past finding out. No lasting gain here under the sun. But God's gift of life promises lasting gain and makes all the difference in the world. All of a sudden, everything matters. Everything we do matters. Number five, our discernment. I wasn't quite sure how to list this one in terms of a theological expression. But our discernment. Another name for discernment, though, is wisdom. (laughs) Because both refer to the ability to see reality clearly by applying biblical truth. You know, putting the glasses on. So by regular application of scripture or consistently practicing our doctrine, we train our senses to distinguish the difference between good and evil, that is moral good and evil, says the writer to the Hebrews. We also learn to be discerning of the schemes of the devil who works through the prosperity of the godless or the suffering of the righteous in order to convince us that life above the sun is a sham. And anyone who pursues a godly life is just living a fantasy world. Of course, the exact opposite is true, isn't it? Sage gives undeniable proof from real-life experiences that life under the sun without God in it is a terrible existence, certainly because it's fleeting, no matter how well people might be able to master it. As we argued, life is not worth living when it ends in certain judgment. More than this, it's life is not truly joyful and rewarding if it promises no lasting gain. No guarantee. Now, Satan has a way of deceiving folks. Even the elect, if they're not discerning, into thinking that life under the sun is great. He makes worldly wisdom actually look very attractive. It's noteworthy that the devil took Jesus along a very high mountain to show him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. If he tempted the Lord with the best of humanity, should we we not think that he he won't try it with, with us in some form or fashion? Of course he will. Apostle Paul resisted preaching according to worldly wisdom, purposing to know nothing among the Corinthians but Jesus and him crucified. Remember that? Oh, he wouldn't give in to to the best of oration that humanity has produced. Oh, no. No emotionally charged words. No trickery. no, No dragging people by their emotional tails into the kingdom. None of that. Just preaching the gospel. Paul's command to those of us who belong to the life above the sun is the same that he gave to the Colossians in chapter 3. First four verses, keep seeking things that are above. Where Christ is seated. 
seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And don't forget what comes next in verse 5 of that chapter. Therefore, and that's an important, in fact, an all-important therefore, verses 1 to 4 tell us what is true of us. You've been born from above. But verse 5 commands us now to live that way. That therefore governs, in fact, the rest of the book. This is who you are. Now, therefore, live this way. And that's wisdom. Number six is our Christology. Christology. There's a sense in which studying every square inch of the Bible will deepen our relationship with our Lord. No question about it. And we have proof of that even from the Pentateuch. We read in Deuteronomy 4, verse 6, regarding God's commandments, God speaking to Israel, so keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding peoples. The covenant relationship that God had with Israel came with wisdom. He gave them his revelation. He gave the Ten Commandments to guide them morally, ceremonial laws to guide the maintenance of their faith in the covenant, and various and sundry civic laws to live by that ensured the health and cohesion of the nation. The law would be, would be their wisdom and teach them how to live correctly, how to be holy because God is holy under the sun. Wisdom books in the Bible, Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, are especially designed to produce that outcome. They provide individual believers, not the nation, but individual believers with a biblical lens so that they can decipher the practice of righteousness from wickedness in everyday life and go on to represent the Lord fairly and accurately. There's no question that our relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ is the foundation for our godly living, right? The foundation. But few Christians ever really get past the fact that he is our Savior and maybe some other facts, like he intercedes for us, he promises never to leave us, he's coming back. And yes and amen to all of those, but beyond these important facts is another one. And that is that Jesus is the epitome of godly wisdom. The writer of the Hebrews told us, for example, that Jesus was superior to Moses. Do you remember that? And to Aaron. And to the sacrificial system. Well, Paul tells us in Colossians 2 that Jesus is superior to Solomon. Listen to verses 2 to 4. That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and that they would attain to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting from the true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will deceive you with persuasive arguments. When the fullness of time 
came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, and John calls him the Word. The Word. The Word of God. Paul calls him our treasure trove of wisdom and knowledge. And what this means for us is that Jesus showed us how to live wisely, leaving us an example to follow, an example in prayer, an example in suffering, right? He taught us, yes, but he also showed us. He taught us so there'd be no misunderstanding about his actions, and that would be the entire Bible. So we have a great encouragement to follow through on his teaching because he practiced it for all to see. And not by his own divine might, by the way, but as a man who depended on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in his life, like we should. You can therefore endure hardship of the worst kind as he did through great drops of blood by looking through them to the joy that will be yours when God is glorified by your actions, as was Jesus' joy. You can anticipate the opportunities to serve others through trials that, you, that, that will come your way as Jesus, was willingly, as Jesus willingly left heaven and entered a life of hardship and suffering just to minister to lost souls. That's Philippians 2.5, right? Have this same attitude in you. Elsewhere, Paul calls us to imitate Christ, to put on Christ, which is another way of saying, act like our Lord. Follow his lead. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemy. Expose false teaching. Stand for God's truth. Be like Christ. The only normal human being there ever was. You want to be normal? Christ is the norm. Yes. Finally, our evangelism. We're better equipped to evangelize the lost with the information we have just from the sage, never mind the rest of the Bible. We called Ecclesiastes, you remember, an Old Testament tract. And for good reason. The sage shows us how to present the good news of God's gift of life by painting the bleakest picture of life. Life is fleeting, past finding out, utterly insane. And today we don't have to spend too much time convincing people of that. In order to showcase the good news of the gospel, especially at the end of his work, where he's not shy to proclaim it to his son, to his students, and to anybody who will read his book as the sum of his, as the sum of his teaching. Beloved, in our last study, we realized that we, like the sage, have something to say. And we cannot be silent. Christians, Christians are the only people in this world, the only people in this world who have the right to tell other people how to live their lives. Do you realize that? That's true. If you're a Christian, only you have the right to tell other people how to live their lives. That is a startling statement, but it's true. And not for any reason, but that we have in our possession absolute truth in the area of morality and spirituality that Jesus left for us with the responsibility to live it and proclaim it to the nations with his authority. Now, if anything in our culture is counter 
to that, anything in our postmodern culture that's counter to that, it's the claim that we have the right message and that we proclaim it with authority. No one does that. No one is allowed to do that. Not in a postmodern culture. Everyone knows that no one has the right to tell another person how to live, that he has the only right way to live, and especially that anyone who doesn't embrace what he's saying will face divine judicial judgment at the end of time and be condemned. If that's not the definition of hate speech, I don't know what is. But of course, it's not hate speech. It's truth from God's mouth to our ears. It's perceived as hate speech by the masses. We know that. They're threatened by it. But the thrust of the gospel, which is the epitome of divine wisdom, is to save life for eternity. And it's motivated by love, not hate. And we don't preach it to get rich or to become famous. Certainly not. We we. Don't do it for our health. Christians are the most persecuted people in the world. Always have been. We're reminded again of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. We will be either a stench of death to those who are perishing or a sweet aroma of life to those who believe. Let me illustrate what I'm saying this way. Let's say that there's a bunch of people lined up to enter a mysterious room advertised by its creators as having unbelieving, unbelievable healing powers that nurtures health and wealth. But the truth is, the creators are evil. Their room really emits high levels of nuclear radiation that cause cancer. And they just need guinea pigs to measure these cancerous effects. Knowing the truth, I proclaim the truth to this long line of sheep who blindly listened to the propaganda. I back up my proclamation with undeniable evidence from science. And I offer them, as, uh, I, I offer them a special suit for life that truly nurtures health and well-being and will even protect them from lethal waves and particles of radiation that they may be exposed to and that they should put it on before they enter that room, certainly. I ask, will you put it on? The nature of depravity might produce a few responses, but certainly all will be wrong. Some might be skeptical. You mean to tell me that you have the truth and all these people missed it? Or that the scientists that, the, that, that work for the company that built this room are wrong? Well, they have a, they've, they've put a statement out assuring us that the room is not that the room is safe, and not only safe, but will nurture health and well-being. You're not a scientist. That's one response. Other is hostility. You're just making this up. Maybe, maybe you're the deceptive one who's claiming remarkable things about your suit so that, so that you'll get us to shop at your clothing store. Your marketing strategy won't work with us. Get lost. If there are any who respond with gratitude, it's because they have seen the light and have been changed by it. Whoa. 
No one has ever showed me the science or the medical log of all those who have been dropping like flies shortly after coming out of that room. I don't know what to say. I'm shaking in my boots at the thought that if you hadn't come along, I would be one of those flies. So I must put this suit on if I want true health and well-being and be saved from any deadly rays. I'll take two. I have a friend who needs to know this. Thank you so much. The point of the illustration is that there is undoubtedly an element of deception in worldly wisdom, wisdom from under the sun, human wisdom, and human nature is bound to it. You understand that? Bound to it. Cannot see past it. There's no choice but to believe it and follow it. We know this in no uncertain terms from Romans 1. Those who threw God over for their own satisfaction became darkened in their thinking. Right? Their darkened thinking produced bizarre, depraved, and unnatural behavior. The third response represents the one whom God enlightens, regenerates, and whose new nature compels him to reject human wisdom and embrace godly wisdom. Ecclesiastes talks not about a room, but the world. The world that God created and that man ruined by his sin and rejection of God. God created man and the world to be a certain way. Adam ruined it by his sin. The world and every fallen individual now governed by God's decrees for a fallen world. They may think they're free, but they are indeed in bondage to their sin and therefore cannot escape the natural outworking of it in their lives. And fallen people don't believe that they're enemies of the Almighty, if they even believe in the Almighty. And they're living in an environment that is harmful to them. They have no idea. Their way of dealing with it, of course, is to recreate it, redefine it for their own mental health and well-being. We're going to call sin good. We're going to call black white. We're going to call up down. That ought to do it. Wow, I feel so much better. They were created worshipers, so they worship the creation. They were created social beings, so they're all about coexisting. But the only way to live in a fallen world that operates by God's decrees with joy that is lasting and the assurance of lasting gain is to be redeemed, to put on Christ, to be clothed with his righteousness. Otherwise, life becomes absolutely absurd no matter how one tries to define or recreate it. We read from 1 Corinthians 3 this morning. Paul says, take care that no one deceives himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Paul turning the tables there. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in the sight of God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise by their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are useless. To become fools, beloved, 
means that people must turn from human wisdom and its prescribed way of life without God in it and embrace godly wisdom, which is to embrace the gospel with all its implications. Only in this way will they be saved and be wise. Father, we thank you for this time together, for your goodness, for sustaining us through a very difficult book, but yet very profitable. We pray that we will recall its truths from our New Testament perspective, seeing Christ as the fulfillment of these great truths for us, and that we will be wise in imitating him and following him and obeying his commandments because we love him. And that we would do so not just because we know that it is the best thing for us to do, but also because we know that it will honor you, and that is our first priority. And our second, of course, is to live in such a way as to make this great faith attractive to the lost, that you may use us to win the lost to yourself, that you may bring the gospel into their lives, invade their fantasy world with truth, open their eyes to it, unstop their ears to it, and grant faith and repentance for your honor and for the benefit of the church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.